Hello and welcome to our third episode of Mon the Workers, a podcast brought to you by the Scottish Trades Union Congress. I'm Ewan McLaren. And I'm Karina Lipdrot, and today we are talking about COP26. As most of you will know, Glasgow hosted the COP26 summit, where over 25,000 delegates and officials came together from across the world to discuss and action climate change measures and agreements. After the conference was extended, countries have narrowly agreed a deal on the climate crisis. This deal is known as the Glasgow Pact and sets a goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. In this episode, we will chat to people who are inside the conference and those who are taking action on the streets around Glasgow while the summit was happening. We are joined today by Richard Hardy, who is the National Secretary with Prospect Union. Prospect is a trade union which represents engineers, managers, scientists and other specialists in both the public and private sectors. Richard was a member of the Scottish Government's Just Transition Commission. And joining Richard is Francis Stewart, who is our colleague, but also a policy officer within the STUC and was part of the trade union delegation at COP26. And joining them both is Stephen Smiley, who's a member of Unison's NEC, deputy convener of Unison Scotland and a member of the Scottish Left Review Editorial Committee. Hi folks, thanks very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, thank you. Yep, thanks for inviting us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, so... My question was for Richard. Um, I know you addressed COP on the last day, representing trade unions and non-governmental organisations. But for those of us that missed your speech, what was the kind of key messaging? I think it was to express an extreme level of disappointment. The presidency had had two years to prepare because obviously COP was cancelled from last year. We all know the science shows where we are with global warming. We all know that um, Indigenous communities, women young people um, and, and lots of other campaigners are calling for change. And, and absolutely from the trade union movement, the call from 210 million workers is for change and for a just transition. Yeah, I think a lot of that anger that you speak about was definitely felt out on the streets as well. Just to pick up on a point that you mentioned there about just transition, but for a lot of people listening, this is fairly new territory. And I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of clarification and background into what you mean by a just transition. But one of the very, really key issues for me in campaigning around just transition is that those people that are more able to afford to pay should be bearing the burden of this. We've seen in the UK, for example, electricity decarbonized with a flat tax. So the burden falls most heavily on the poor. And if we're going to have a proper accounting and a proper approach to climate change, what we can't do is expect those countries that have never industrialized or have industrialized much less to actually pick up the tab for those of us that have. Francis, a lot of your work has been around the Just Transition as well. Um, would you want to give us a little bit of kind of history and background on, on, on what you work on around Just Transition? So the, the concept itself came from, it was coined by an American trade union leader called Tony Mazzocchi, who worked for the Oil and Chemical Workers Union. He was an elected official there. Yeah, he enlisted the support of environmentalists and community groups for action that workers were taking in, the, in that industry, particularly around sort of health and safety issues. So they took a number of environmental strikes or health and safety strikes. And I think that's important because it's a, a concept that's born out the labour movement. And it also has quite a, a militant 
background and also a background which is about linking up labour movements with environmental movements. And I think there is a concern that just transition at times now is becoming a concept that's increasingly used by people without any engagement of trade unions and workers or environmentalists. And I think that is a concern that we're seeing that in COP spaces and we're seeing that in spaces across across Scottish government policy and, and elsewhere. So I think that background is quite important to bring into this. Thanks for bringing that up. And I do think that is very important to note. Stephen, could you explain what the wider workplace agenda is on a just transition? Yeah, well, in relation to workplace, I mean, we would argue that just transition needs to apply in all workplaces. The high carbon industries at the moment, but the gas, the oil industries are the most obvious examples where jobs will not exist in, in future. And therefore, we need a, a transition to allow those workers and those communities which rely on the jobs of those workers to be able to transition in a fair way into a new economy. Every workplace is going to be impacted by climate change, no matter what whether that's just in terms of the, the climatic conditions in which people workers will have to work or the kind of skills that will be needed. So your mechanics who fix your cars and your buses and your lorries and all the rest of it, when we transition to electric vehicles, their skills will no longer be needed. They will need to be reskilled. Uh, we need to transition an economy, essentially, which creates green jobs and, and, and values the green jobs which already exist, which aren't all in renewables. I mean, I, I represent Unison members in health, social care and, and education in areas like these are green jobs because they're not contributing, they're not creating uh, greenhouse gases and yet those jobs are not valued highly enough and therefore we need to think about how we restructure the economy with industrial planning which actually values those kind of jobs and creates opportunities, employment opportunities for the future. So right down to the very uh, temperatures that you know, people will be working in in the workplace or the, the exposure to greater levels of UV light, issuing of the right kind of protective clothing if you're working outside, all those things are part of a just transition, as Richard says, the poor don't pay, but it's also about that the workers don't suffer either through loss of jobs or poor quality jobs in, in the future. Greenwashing was brought up by a lot of protests that we saw happening around the city. Francis, how much of an impact on global warming do you feel that COP will have? Will there actually be real change? And do you think that the outcomes are obtainable? Quite a big question. My first thought says that COP itself in many ways is, to many, a big greenwashing exercise. And COP is used by a number of governments and companies to launch initiatives which either don't engage workers or aren't ambitious enough in terms of climate targets. So I think there is a risk that, like I felt when I was sort of in COP, that there was like just journalists everywhere. It was a media scrum everywhere. And the people that come out of that media scrum are quite often the rich and powerful and it's not representatives of workers. So I'm, I'm like, I'm a cynic at, at nature. So I, I don't see COP itself having, coming up with good outcomes. As Richard said at the start, no, we're on a trajectory of 2.4 degrees warming. We don't have funding for the global south. I don't think the outcomes of COP are good enough to see good sustainable solutions to tackle climate change. However, what I think there was potential benefit from is all the things that happened outside COP. So we saw... 100,000 people marching through the streets of Glasgow. We saw young climate activists on picket lines of refuse workers or um, Caledonian sleeper train drivers. We saw workshops put on where you heard from like workers at Rolls-Royce who were talking about how they were developing their own plans to decarbonise their company. 
So I think those links between the environmental movement and climate activists and trade unions, alongside actions, actual actions and, and industrial action at times from workers are some of the best outcomes that we could have hoped for. And I think it's only by building that sort of power, whether it's a big angry mob or whether it's actually skilling up people to take action in their workplaces, that's the type of thing that will shift local governments, governments, and then future COPs to actually change things. Yeah, we were at a few events outside COP and it was really powerful to see the climate activists and workers coming together and showing solidarity across the movement, particularly for the GMB cleansing workers. We're actually going to hear from Sean from GMB, who is an organiser, just a little bit more about that now. Welcome, Sean, and thanks for joining us. Could you just give us a bit of a background of the strike and what the key demands were? Yes. So 1,000 of Glasgow City Council's refuse and cleansing workers were on strike for a period of eight days from the 1st of November to the 8th during the COP26. It was a, a dispute around a national pay negotiation through COSLA, but it was very much fueled by the local conditions and the kind of discriminatory pay and grade structure around the council amongst a whole range of different things, including a toxic management culture, derelict facilities, and the, the kind of resource and capacity of the service has been diminished beyond redemption almost to what the city needs and what the workforce needs. We saw at the Fridays for the Future rally and at the Global Day of Action rally, there were so many GMB flags, so many people saying solidarity with the strike, and there was a lot of buzz around the GMB cleansing workers. Could you just describe the support that you felt that you were giving and also that you're receiving from everyone else as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for a lot of the activists and those who were campaigning around COP26, it was almost instinctively that they joined and sought out the picket lines and sought out the striking workers to show their solidarity. They had an immediate understanding of the role that our members play to create and maintain a kind of green, clean, sustainable future for us all. And it was really that kind of instinctive solidarity they showed in the picket lines or turn up early in the morning, showing their support, having conversations and, and really kind of brought a lot of energy to the picket lines. And off the back of that, I think it really encouraged a lot of the striking workers to attend the, the, the big demos. So on the, the, the youth strikers, they made a big banner and invited the striking workers to the demo and there was like a oh, 30 foot banner saying we support the strikers and dozens if not hundreds of striking workers came from different depots close by to march with the youth climate marchers on the Friday and then Saturday groups of striking workers provided a, a large part of the student for the demo and it was kind of just making sure that the press and, and certain high profile climate campaigners were protected and given the, the kind of space that they deserve to, to really campaign and enjoy, enjoy the protest alongside everyone else. Yes, and you were specifically supporting the youth block and Greta Thunberg in particular. Did you manage to see her or talk to her? I didn't. I don't know if any of the striking workers did, but I think they had a, they had a great time. And I know from the conversations that I've heard and the feedback I've got is that that kind of level of mutual understanding and mutual understanding of what needs to be done was most strongly felt between the youth strikers and the, the, the kind of Glasgow refuse strikers. It was that they both understood the challenges that we all face and the actions that we need to take together to combat it and fight for a decent future. And that was it's one of the most inspiring things I've been part of, and I'm sure it will be 
uh, leave a lasting impression for everyone that was involved. Thanks so much for that, Sean. I'm sure it will stick in everyone's minds for a long time. We also had a chat with Mary from Friends of the Earth Scotland. Mary, could you explain what the Glasgow Climate Pact actually means? Yeah, so you'll have seen in the in the reporting for after the climate summit that there's been an awful lot of backslapping and congratulations about the new Glasgow Pact. There's also been a blame game going on about in, in, in relation to the bits that didn't maybe live up to how the UK presidency wanted it to. But from where we're standing, we think COP26 will be remembered as really a historic failure to close the gap on 1.5 degrees. So the aim of, of the Glasgow summit was to keep 1.5 degrees within grasp. But what we've seen is rich nations really shirking their responsibility to clean up the mess that they've created and trying to offload the burden of climate action onto the shoulders of the poorest. So, you know, the Glasgow Climate Pact, it's got the language of 1.5 degrees, but just repeating that is, is absolutely meaningless when there's nothing in the agreement to actually deliver on it. And what we saw over the last two weeks is, you know, countries, including the UK, uh, the US and, and the nations of the EU, you know, they're really failing to cut their climate pollution fast enough. And they came to the table with absolutely nothing new in terms of uh, the urgently needed climate finance that they owe to countries already bearing the brunt of climate breakdown. And instead, what they did was they spent their time making all these unenforceable announcements and pledges on the fringes of COP most of which are simply sort of reheated or vague promises for action. And inside the negotiations, they instead blocked on a fair process for you know, badly needed long-term climate finance. They refused to entertain finance for loss and damage, and that was a key red line for many countries of the global south. And instead, they pushed through all these loopholes and get-out clauses to avoid having to take action themselves. What we were discussing earlier on COP, being viewed as a, a, a total failure. However, it was good to see that many people out on the streets and really fighting the cause. And I know that that Friends of the Earth Scotland played played a role in that. I was just wondering what what was the kind of cooperation that you had between the campaign groups and unions, and and can you speak a bit on that at all? Yeah, and I think that's the that's the important point, right? So despite the the failure of of world leaders and negotiators to get to where we need to be inside the negotiations, we actually do leave this summit with real hope in our hearts because the movements have come together, you know, more powerfully and in more unity and numbers than than ever before around this summit. And thinking in particular of of, of workers um, and climate justice activists, you know, workers' struggles were really highly visible at COP26. And I think a number of the unions did a, a fantastic job of, of really leveraging the summit to win long-standing battles for better pay and conditions. So the fights with um, Abelio, the, the, the rail workers, and also uh, you know climate activists being on the picket line pretty much every day with um, uh, refuge workers. And you know I think that was one of the amazing things that we that we saw there. This sort of building of solidarity, showing and, and learning together about how our struggles are connected because of course the climate crisis is caused by the same drivers that are gutting the pub, you know, our, cent- our central public services and without a, a decent um, well-funded public uh, service infrastructure we can't put in place what's needed to turn around the climate crisis and you know public transport and waste are actually really really obvious examples of this you know transport being one of the biggest sources of, of climate pollution um, and public transport being 
in, you know, an absolutely key part of the solution to this, uh, to getting people out of, out of their cars. And of course, refuse workers and refuse infrastructure being, you know, a really fundamental component of the circular economy. So, you know, that was great to see that sort of solidarity and, 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 and learning together in action. We also had the Just Transition Hub, so this joint platform of the Scottish Trade Union Congress with Friends of Scotland, War on Want and, and others, to, to really start to have those deeper conversations around how our, our different struggles come together and, and to start to think through how we overcome some of the contradictions or apparent contradictions in maybe what we're calling for in different parts of the movement so that we can get to a climate-safe future in a way that leaves no one behind in the global north, but that also doesn't come at the continued expense of the global south. So, you know, a, a transition in the global north is simply not just if it relies on the continued extractivism of global south resources. That's just uh, neo-colonialism. So, you know, we're starting to have those really, you know, quite challenging at times, uh, but essential conversations around global just transitions. Thank you very much. That was Mary Church from Friends of the Earth Scotland. But something I guess that I wanted to to ask specifically to Richard and Stephen as well is what can workers be doing specifically to help promote change in their workplaces, but also in their communities? Unions and and the communities that we work in are often going to be uh, at the forefront of change. I think in in relation to some of the high carbon jobs, we need to be holding the employer's feet to the fire and demanding to see their decarbonisation plans. And at a national level, which we do to an extent through the STUC, we want to see what the government is going to do about creating good quality jobs, about encouraging capital to, re- to produce those jobs, but about what it's going to do itself. Because I think we all agree, whether you're a left-wing union or a right-wing union, that the market is not going to deliver this solution on its own. Francis, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I guess just on what workers and unions can do, like, you know, Stephen and Richard have talked about this, but they can organise in existing industries and come up with their own decarbonisation plans. I also think that they need to organise in the new green industries of the present and the future. And there's big challenges there. Like we've seen a lot of particularly renewable energy work not bring the jobs that were promised. People might be aware of the example of the Bifab yards uh, or former Bifab yards in Fife and Arnish, where you know, work work was promised to come in and hasn't come in and lots of people have lost out and that work has been offshored. But I think we still need to organise to improve the jobs that are being created in those industries. And then the third thing that I think we can do is you know, work, we're workers, but we're citizens too. And we can engage in local community campaigns and two of those which um, the STC are pushing for our action on uh, our climate, our buses as a campaign that we're running to re-regulate our buses so that we can sort of control routes and fares, take them back into public ownership so that profits don't seep out that industry and then make them either as affordable as possible or ideally free so that people shift from cars to buses. Another campaign is around retrofitting our homes and our buildings and that you know, that's responsible for a large amount of emissions in Scotland. There's also big issues around fuel poverty and we need massive investment in retrofitting our homes if we're to tackle climate change. And those are things that particularly affect working class communities, which trade unions representing working class communities and people should be engaging in and pushing for action from local government on. 
If I could just come in there, because I'm much less cynical than Francis. COP is part of a process. It is a big event, but it's part of a process. There was there was two years in preparation. There'll be another year in preparation for the next one. And all alongside that, trade unions will be doing what they do in the workplace, which we've been talking about. But the broader coalition, which we were part of preparing for COP, with, specifically within the COP26 coalition, which included organisations like Friends of the Earth Scotland, Stop Climate Care Scotland, the, the, the Fridays for Future and XR and all those kind of organisations, they are, we're not all going to sleep for the next uh, uh, year waiting to see what happens in Egypt. We are going to continue building uh, our own campaigns, but it's critically important that we actually build that coalition, that we continue to work with these organisations so that the message and the examples get into the community and we put pressure on the politicians. Thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, and thanks for everybody for, for joining today. appreciate you coming along to speak to us. This episode was hosted by Karina Liptrot and Ewan McLaren. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Our username is at Scottish TUC.